Hello, I'm David Getson. Welcome to episode 56, Sol Seu Machine, Sun or Machine, Corbusier, Sheldrake, and Design as Method Manifest. Here in Italy, our first course of the Sorrento Design Program is completed. To see a video of the student design process and to talk to us about upcoming course opportunities, go to www.ausbildung.studio. That's A-U-S-B-I-L-D-U-N-G dot studio. You can also send email to info at ausbildung.studio, and there is a special exclusive commentary coming up in this podcast expanding on this episode's topic for our members. Thank you so much for the support. You can go to patreon.com slash fundamentalprocess to learn more. A sample of that conversation will be uploaded for everyone to hear in this feed. One of my favorite moments in the whole canon of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series is in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is the book where a stubbornly skeptical boy named Justus Clarence Scrub, along with Lucy and Edmund from the earlier books, sail with Prince Caspian on a Viking-style dragon ship all the way to the end of the world and the edge of understanding. As one would expect on such an odyssey, plenty of mysterious islands emerge from the horizon. The best of these for me is Star Island, where a Prospero-like wise man named Ramandu lives with his daughter. In telling the children why it is called Star Island, they hear it is because Ramandu himself is a star, but an old one who decided he wanted to fall, as if the far reaches of the Narnian seas were so lovely he chose to retire to that ground of all the places in the sky. Incredulous to the last, Justus confronts his host, declaiming this is impossible because Everyone knows very well that stars are just big spheres of burning hydrogen. With a glint in his eye, Ramandu smiled and replied with something along the lines of, Yes, of course, young man, this is what stars are made of. But does knowing that really tell you what a star is? With brilliantly turned rhetoric, revealing that wonder is, as Socrates said, where wisdom begins, and as such is the best form of skepticism. Lewis planted in the midst of a children's story a very profound thought. Treating the limits of material as the limits of fact precludes discovery of a great amount of meaningful truth. How many of us look around at the built environment and rarely take the opportunity to observe, let alone make impactful decisions about anything that stretches beyond the realm of purely material function and consequence? 
it is very clear that the nature of buildings exert a tremendous influence on how we feel within a space. Say what one will about the relative autonomy of subjective opinions on built form, the sensory connection between the material and the mental that exists for every individual means that it objectively feels very different to be inside the lobby of a typical glass-skinned office tower than to go through the entrance of a skyscraper like the Marquette Building in Chicago, where the distinction between outside and inside is emphasized rather than elided, the relative dark of the late 19th century light bulbs making the sunlit doorway stream inward, while mosaics glitter around you in the polygonal atrium. There are places we all know where material has been deliberately shaped largely to serve as a means to pragmatic ends, without much additional consideration. If you search your memory even just a little, there are almost certainly places you would remember where there was some sense that the shape of material things around you carried a lifelike intensity as if your instincts were in quiet dialogue with the architecture while your mind, above all this, went where it would. It might be true that the disruptive tides of industrialization required architecture to adapt by pulling the reins of attention in to what became such a narrow focus on the utilitarian. But in these times, when even the innovation engines of Silicon Valley are slowing down and optimization gradually takes over from disruption in field after field, the zeitgeist naturally reaches beyond the material realms. And fortunately, we are no longer obliged to maintain the polite fiction of conflict between science and religion, physic and metaphysic, material and spirit. It is one of the ironies of 20th century architecture that a man who brought a highly developed spiritual awareness to the craft of building came to be so closely associated with architecture as mechanism. Le Corbusier became famous for his elegant yet austere concepts that ran from the scale of a small alpine villa to the United Nations Plaza in New York and even the planning of an entire provincial capital with Chandigarh, India. His life, ideas, and works deserve several chapters that we may go into detail on in the episodes ahead. Enthusiastically calling houses machines for living, and in his book, Towards an Architecture, directly analogizing the development of Greek temple column orders to the evolution of 1920s sports cars, Corbusier was the foremost evangelist for the new era of the machine that followed the First World War. Yet, 
Perhaps his purportedly stark bias towards the mechanistic is not entirely his own, but baggage that the broader culture had picked up centuries before his birth. It might seem jarring that someone would prefer to call the domestic sphere a machine, but it was a consistent, logical, and honest reaction to the worldview that Western culture had by that time come to espouse. Europe and even Western Asia had, from our earliest records, considered the whole world and everything in it to be created objects. But you might think in reaction, what else could the world be but created, either through God or by nature? And that reaction is diagnostic of how deep this assumption goes in our culture. There are alternative beliefs. The West Asian cosmogony of the world as artifact contrasts to the East Asian view of the world as self-creating, self-sustaining organism, the African view of the world as being birthed from primordial fertility, and the South Asian view of all material as the dream of God. What we tend to call Western civilization really began with any critical mass around the year 1000. The Greco-Roman, Egyptian, and Mesopotamian civilizations have been fascinating and influential to our own in great part because they are so alien to us. Classical Greek culture in particular holds very distinct creation stories. As with anything from Hellenic origins, the sources are several instead of singular, but the most ancient and deepest tradition is said to come from the so-called Pelagasian tradition. And in this creation myth, Euronome, the primordial goddess, arose naked from dark chaos and seeing that nothing was around her, separated the heavens from the waters by dancing, moving generally in a southern direction. As she danced, the air displaced by her body, the primal breath of Boreas, the north wind, was the first consequent, the first event whose novelty became fertile with her and set in motion the history that brought all things. Such a story puts one in a very different mindset about the world and how we relate to it than the West Asian stories, common to the Judeo-Christian as well as the Mesopotamian roots, of God as a divine potter, the demiurge of infinite power, nonetheless deliberately taking time for creation to be made, eventually sculpting humans from the clay of the earth. We inherit from this, even in a world where the occasion of the divine has been effectively rendered moot, the idea of the world as an artifact, as something assembled. Under the sway of Western culture, we even treat our own bodies in a mechanical way. 
although every serious scientist, philosopher, and especially software engineer is acutely aware of the differences between things that grow and the things that are assembled. As Western culture, or to dispense with that confusingly vague and imprecise term, what Spengler more helpfully called the Faustian world system was, by the 1600s, going through a process of self-consciously formalizing and specifying what had previously been enacted in an unconscious and instinctive way. The scientific revolution, the Age of Enlightenment, the Reformation, all those movements that, in these contentious days, seem to inspire either self-absorbed blind loyalty and infinite credit from the far right, or fiercely zealous enmity, self-hatred, and infinite blame from the far left, these moments of upspring from the cultural roots of the Faustian West take an explicitly mechanical view of the world. After all, the discoveries of modern physics, developments in botany and anatomy, and the innovations that led to the technology you are listening to this with right now were made possible by treating the world around us as if it were like a machine. Even though we lucky survivors of the 20th century are fully aware of the limits and dangers of such a way of interacting with the world, this mechanistic view has led to many unprecedented advances. And interestingly enough, one man seems to get all the blame. René Descartes, a 17th century philosopher, managed to precisely formulate and articulate what the civilization around him had been expressing. Interestingly enough, he thought he had thereby discovered a proof of the existence of God. Reversing the stance held by both the Socratic and Buddhist schools of thought, Descartes asserted that the existence of the self was the only possible certainty. Thus, separating everything into the dualistic categories of the realm of thought, and the realm of extended and therefore measurable matter. The philosopher formalized a way of looking at the world that had already begun with Galileo to transform what humans would be capable of achieving. With thought separated from matter, objects and even bodies were considered as mechanical, animated by divine logos. As time went on, this divine intervention became of less and less interest to those dealing with physical things until, by the start of the 20th century, individuals who were spiritually inclined or so inspired began to self-consciously exile themselves into periodic romantic movements. In the midst of this alienation brought to crisis by the First World War, Corbusier's celebration of architecture as a machine is actually an attempt at reunification of spirit and matter. 
If buildings were machines, he wanted them to be divine machines. While attempting to overcome the shortcomings and limitations of the mechanistic worldview, Corbusier's architecture with the plain white surfaces and austere lines can appear to impose rather than transcend the mechanical, but it should not be forgotten what force of belief drove him in his monk-like dedication to geometric purity. In his book Towards an Architecture, he writes, A great epoch has begun. There exists a new spirit. Industry, overwhelming us like a flood which rolls on towards its destined end, has furnished us with new tools adapted to this new epoch, animated by l'esprit nouveau, the new spirit. This, by the way, was the name of his magazine. Economic law unavoidably governs our acts and our thoughts. The problem of the house is a problem of the epoch. The equilibrium of society today depends on it. Say what you will about how his towers in the park may have in the hands of others yielded housing projects and council estates that, even now in Paris, are sharpening the very contradictions he warned about. Corbusier's location of the root problem of architecture and Therefore, society more broadly, in an unresolved alienation of spirit from matter, remains unsettlingly relevant. An interesting debate can be had on if he actually succeeded in his lofty goal of helping society by unifying matter and spirit. In coming episodes, we'll be sharing with you how his architecture radically transformed in pursuit of that singular goal of spiritual unity. We'll follow Corbusier's evolution from Euclidean exactitude to curvilinear precision and look closely at a world where a long emergency of politicized religion now shares space with legitimate scientists who postulate that the sun is a living, conscious entity. Next time on Fundamental Process. Thank you for listening.